0: The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday, or listen to the whole series immediately ad free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on HistoryExtra.com. Welcome to the History Extra Podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The first half of the 19th century witnessed the rise of an extraordinary working-class campaign for political reform known as Chartism. What made this movement so remarkable was its size and sophistication and the levels of anxiety it provoked among the British establishment. But did the Chartists actually achieve any of their aims? For our latest Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Spencer Mizzen sat down with Joan Allen, visiting fellow in history at Newcastle University and chair of the Society for the Study of Labour History to discuss the Chartist movement.
1: Joan, thanks very much for joining us today. We're here to talk about Chartism, uh, a mass working class movement that agitated for political reform in the 19th century. I suspect, Joan, that some of our listeners won't have a particularly in-depth knowledge of this particular episode in British history. So I wonder if you could start by giving us a brief overview of the movement. Who were the Chartists? What were they campaigning for? And when exactly are we talking about?
2: Okay, well, perhaps if we start with the when, that might help. It's a common assumption that Chartism is what's called the Chartist Decade. That is to say it's an event which takes place over a 10-year period between 1838 and 1848. But of course, the time frame for Chartism is much longer than that. We can trace back the demand um, uh, for democratic reform to around the 1770s. And it's an intellectual current that gradually picks up pace as we move through the 18th century and into the 19th. And at various points, you will hear politicians talking about particular campaigning points which we can then map onto to the Chartists' uh, demands. Gradually as we move through the 1830s, you see this gathering pace. So many people would take the time frame more properly from 1832 and then onwards to roughly around 1855, which gives us a much bigger period of time to consider. So the, the Chartists, although it's often talked about as if these were all working class men, it was actually a movement which brought together men and women who campaigned um, long and hard over this long period. The majority, vast majority, were working people, but we focus very particularly on skilled working people who had time as well as money, they were articulate and educated and understood um, the the questions around democracy. But it also included a minority of middle class and indeed wealthy people. So in some ways it was a movement that encompassed all um, corners of society.
1: And if you could sum up in just a couple of sentences what they were campaigning for, what would that be?
2: They were campaigning primarily for democratic reform, but they were also looking for social and economic change.
1: Right, now I'm going to turn to a question that came in from Susie1340 on Instagram, and that is... In what respects was Chartism the result of the failure of the Reform Act of 1832? How did a sense of betrayal among working class people drive the movement forwards?
2: You could say, to a large extent, that the Great Reform Act, which did not deliver what the political unionists had demanded, was in a large part what galvanised campaigners onwards and into what then became the Chartist Movement. But you would have to take into account a much wider context for that. In the first place, this had been a shared campaign. It was a true class alliance but it was the middle classes who were enfranchised as a result of that campaign. And so, yes, indeed, there was a great sense of disappointment, betrayal, to use your word, and um, disillusionment as well, that, that, you know, having forced the hand of government, they were then left empty-handed, if you like. So what did they expect
1: from the the Reform Act? I mean, what were they promised from it and what didn't they get that they they expected?
2: They weren't actually promised that they would have democracy, but they did think that the property qualification would play out rather more uh, equally than it eventually did, because very few people could meet the property qualification that was brought in. But it was, wasn't all loss, of course. They gained um, some of the reforms that were part of that campaign, including the representation of constituencies that had had no representation, the large urban and particularly northern industrial towns, which um, had no representative at all, when some very, very small so-called rotten boroughs had two representatives. So th- that was a definite gain, undoubtedly.
1: In summary, what did democracy look like across Britain in the early 19th century? I mean, how patchy was it?
2: Well, it was very patchy. You have to understand that industrialisation had transformed the population map. And so that you get these the rise of these big industrial areas. Largely populated by impoverished working people. And so it's the concentrations in those areas which were unrepresented, and the uh, leafy suburbs, small, um, very old and ancient towns that were overrepresented. And
1: as you mentioned there, I mean, the Industrial Revolution, industrialisation was an enormous event, a transformative event at this time. And how did industrialisation change people's lives? And, and would it be right in saying it often didn't change their lives for the better?
2: Oh, no, of course it didn't. In the short term, it, it actually was hugely damaging. In the first place, you find that there's you know, a loss of employment Uh, among the skilled working people who um, had developed these skills via uh, a very long apprenticeship. Therefore, you know, what was prized was handcraft work, artisan work. Um, And, of course, when the machines arrived, when mechanisation arrived, uh, although these machines were quite basic, they nevertheless... Rendered some of these skilled workers redundant. They could no longer work in ways that they had for a very long time. And, and of course, that apprenticeship delivered status as well as uh, wages. And so th- this was a very fundamental shift. But if we also look at working people who ended up being the, the workforce, if you like, for this new industrial economy. They had to work to a time frame so that it was set hours and it was a system of punitive fines. They were often very uncertain as to whether they would get the work at all. And so this was a complete transformation from previous ways of working where people worked according to the seasons and to the amount of daylight rather than to the clock. So they had no control over their working lives anymore. And and wages were, of course, very poor and women were particularly pressed into work, children too. So you have to um, regard... in early industrialization certainly, as a punitive system, uh, which leads to widespread impoverishment. And so when does this
1: impoverishment begin to translate properly into action? When did the rest of the country become aware of the rise of, of charitism and its demands?
2: I suppose when they start to campaign in very, very large numbers, this would be um, the moment at which it becomes a much more of a nationally recognisable campaign, if you will. But these things don't happen overnight. And as Malcolm Chase famously said, Chartism was... A campaign that was fought in tiny little villages, in small communities, as well as in large urban centres like Birmingham and Manchester and Newcastle and Glasgow and London. And also, would it be fair
1: to say that rising levels of literacy and education among the working classes made them more keenly aware of the iniquities of the system and therefore made them more eager and able to campaign against that.
2: We have to be a little careful about literacy, because in 1838, not everyone was benefiting from uh, much more than a basic education, often delivered through Sunday schools, for example, which privileged, you know, mostly numeracy rather than reading um, or writing even. But we know that Chartism relied heavily on print culture. And so the way that the wider population were able to access this very important print culture was the way that uh, newspapers were read aloud in public houses, here read, as they would say. So people accessed the messages of Chartism from. Those meetings in factories and in public houses and on the street, but also through bill posting, pamphleteering, banners at meetings in particular, which carried very crisp messages so that even those who couldn't read could become familiar with the slogan, with the message. And then there would be songs and hymns would be sung at meetings, using old hymn tunes so that everyone knew the tune and could sing along to the chorus. So it's it's really a more complex and nuanced picture of messaging, if you like.
1: Now, Joan, I'm now going to turn to a question which is uh, popular among uh, internet search queries, and that is, what were the Chartist's principal demands? And also another part of that question really is, what were the six points of the Charter? So can you explain what these six points were and indeed what the Charter was and what the Charters really wanted to change?
2: Okay, well, I suppose the first point of the Charter was always going to be adult male suffrage. The idea was that you were an adult when you were 21, And they felt that there should be no taxation without representation. So every man should be entitled to a vote. It had, of course, been intended to be just suffrage, adult suffrage. But, of course, they cast it as adult male suffrage because they felt that asking for female suffrage as well would damage their campaign. And that it was something they would have to wait for. But that was the primary aim, if you like. But after that, because elections were very corrupt at this point in time, um, they were very, very keen to have secret ballots. And, you know, you can understand why because then they could choose to vote for whoever they liked, rather than uh, succumb to the pressure of either their employer or the local vicar or their landlord or whoever else wished to exert that pressure. They did not want a property qualification, so they they didn't think there should be a property qualification. So that was another one. Can we just expand on that a
1: little bit? So previously... To have the right to vote, would you need to be a property owner? Is that, is that right?
2: Yes, yes.
1: So that was quite a radical change then, that would have been?
2: Well, it would, if you think of how many people were living, not just in rented, but in shared rented accommodation, often in a single room. And, you know, they may, might have been very hardworking and fully employed, but unable to meet the qualification. So that was a, a major barrier to many people. They also wanted MPs to be paid because in order to be represented among themselves, they needed to send working people to Parliament. But of course, it was a very expensive undertaking and most working people could not take the time away from work in order to represent a constituency. So it was a vicious circle, really. They were never going to get that representation until they had um, MPs who had some sort of salary and expenses.
1: So were most parliamentarians at the time, by definition, quite wealthy and therefore unrepresentative?
2: Absolutely. You know, you had to have money to put yourself forward for an election. You had to pay for an election and then sustain yourself in Parliament, living in London, and and you're doing all that was necessary there. Then, of course, there was the question of equal electoral districts, now, we touched upon this earlier with the rotten boroughs, etc. But this was an idea which said that, you know, this should be balanced according to the size of the population. So it was a much more precise request, if you like.
1: And as you said, that the need for that had kind of been heightened by the mass movement of workers into cities, is that right?
2: Precisely, Yes. And then the last one, which of course is the one we have never achieved, is the annual parliaments. They felt that it it would be a good check on government if they had to be voted in every 12 months. They would be more likely to answer to the will of the people.
1: This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter.
2: Daylight saving time is
1: once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's
2: ZipRecruiter.com slash extra.
1: That is a, re- a really interesting demand. And obviously our elections are far from annual at the moment. I mean, how, how did those in power react to that particular demand, just to take, take that one in isolation at the moment?
2: Well, I don't think they, they regarded it as a serious proposition. And, and to be honest... You can't really re-elect a government every 12 months. I think what it speaks to is the complete lack of trust that, was then pledged into you know the parliamentary system there was no no belief in its fairness or its capacity to be fair
1: and how regular were elections at, at that time
2: well elections there was no fixed term parliament so of course it, it it depended upon the the confidence of the balance of power in in westminster if you like
1: so the charitists have got their, their six points their six demands How did they go about mobilising so many people, turning, as you've already acknowledged, a series of localised protests into an enormous nationwide movement? Because would I be right in saying, is that what really distinguishes the Chartist movement from what's gone before? The fact that it did very quickly catch fire and become this kind of nationwide campaign?
2: Yes, certainly it's the way it manages to connect disparate areas that matters. And how they go about that um, largely depends on having key leaders in various parts of the country who become recognisable because they travel to meetings and tour um, their various districts and give these enormously important platform speeches. So you would have enormous meetings with, you know, thousands and thousands of people all gathering in open space. And you would have multiple hustings, but the the central platform would usually be someone who was known and recognised as an important leader and would have the capacity to speak to a crowd like that. Could you just give us a
1: couple of examples of people who you, know, you say they've been known to the crowd, the people doing the talking? Can you introduce us to a couple of those people, please?
2: Well, the, the person that most people are familiar with is Fergus O'Connor. Fergus O'Connor becomes, I suppose, the totemic figure of the movement. He's he's a very very wealthy former Irish MP, who then becomes elected to the Westminster Parliament. But most importantly, he owns, he sets up and owns the Northern Star, which becomes the flagship national Chartist newspaper. And um, he is famous. I mean, he was a barrister at law, so he has, you know, the gift of speaking in a kind of, I suppose, performative manner if you like. So he he had all of those skills and is able to inspire a crowd in the the way that uh, the great speech makers always can. Um, So he becomes very important indeed. But then you do have other leaders in other parts of the country. So, for example, George Julian Harney, who is much more hot-headed and much more radical than Fergus. Harney is involved, very much involved in London chartism, but becomes the representative for Newcastle upon Tyne. So spends a lot of time moving between London and Newcastle and um, becomes, you know, well-known to people right across the north. So, you know, they're, they're just two people, for example.
1: And you say they... You know, we had huge congregations, enormous crowds attending these events. I mean, do we know exactly how big they were, how many people?
2: If we think about Glasgow, for example, there were 150,000 people gathered on Glasgow Green in May 1838. And that was the meeting where the charter was presented for the first time. They didn't actually have the hard copies of it that they took to circulate because the printer was doing it as a pro bono job and couldn't get them ready in time. Had to privilege his paid work first, but nevertheless, at that you could imagine a meeting of that size. And what was interesting is that you know London has often dominated accounts of the Chartist movement and given us a skewed idea that this was a southern you know it had a southern hub if you like but the choice of glasgow was very deliberate and it was the case that groups of chartists traveled from all over the british isles to attend this meeting in glasgow um, and and assembled in those numbers that's a fair proportion of a population
1: now that leads me on nicely to another question which is popular among internet search queries and that is what were the landmark events or flashpoints in the Chartist campaign? What individual events in the movement do we really need to know about?
2: Well I suppose Newport, the Newport Rising, Newport that is in South Wales November 1839 This led to the death of a number of Chartists and lots of Chartists injured and culminated in a big show trial. The Newport Rising was intended to be the starting point for a series of domino risings, if you will, which would travel north up the country. Um, But, of course, the, the government successfully anticipated the rising and were able to counteract the activity that was planned. The short trial which resulted with Frost and his compatriots charged with treason and sentenced initially to death, a sentence which was then transmuted to transportation to Australia, it captured the headlines you know, in ways you could scarcely imagine. And, Some historians would say it subdued Chartism, particularly in Wales thereafter, because first of all, Chartists were anxious not to further aggravate the situation. So um, any planned activities were stood down until the outcome of the trial in early 1840. But also, the government set on foot a number of arrests. So between 1839 and 1840, you get 500 Chartists imprisoned for their Chartist activities. 2,000 of them had been tried, so not all of them were convicted. But if you take away the leadership, if you cream off that leadership, then you leave people without their organisational management structure, if you like. So you can see how that would have had a bad effect. They planned to have what was called the Sacred Month, which was a series of strikes across the industrial areas, particularly in Lancashire, now, it, it doesn't actually take place, but this culminates in a show trial as well, with Fergus O'Connor in the dock, along with more than 50 other Chartists. The state mismanaged the trial, and Fergus leads his own defense and that of the other Chartists and is able to evade conviction. But nevertheless, it's an important moment.
1: So let's turn back briefly to the Newport Rising because that gives us, I guess, a window onto the authorities' attitude and reaction to I And it strikes me as being quite draconian. Another popular question submitted on the internet is, you know, how did those in power react to the rise of Chartists, And I, I guess something we need to bear in mind here is the bloodshed and chaos of revolutions across Europe in the recent past. How did that play into the reaction of the authorities? Did they have any sympathy for the chartists cause or was it chiefly driven by fear and hostility?
2: I think you're right. I think that fear was a great factor. That, you know, the, the idea of crowds gathering had these revolutionary associations, not least because of the situation in France, particularly in 1830, but also there was an awareness that there was still a, a revolutionary mood across Europe. And so the state were very anxious about public order, And regarded the Chartists as disorderly um, because, not necessarily because of rioting, but because of these gatherings which they feared could turn into riots. So there was a good deal of espionage and infiltration of the Chartist movement by the state um, as a means of, you know, keeping a watchful eye on their activities. But one of the difficulties that the state had was they were more reliant on the militia or the yeomanry than on policing because you don't really have a, a fully fledged national police force at this point in time. Um, and it wasn't always easy to move your uh, military forces into position, you know, quickly enough. So that also was a, you know, a cause of anxiety, if you like, that they didn't have the means at their disposal to control crowds as much as they would wish. And you have to remember that, as I said, the scale of these meetings, where Chartists would literally be occupying not just the meeting ground, but also all the surrounding streets um, and processing through those streets. So the potential for trouble was always present. So they very much reacted by monitoring and being a presence at meetings, but also they also rejected the three petitions. So You have to remember that chartists followed two strategies. The one was constitutional, using all the means at their disposal to campaign for democracy. So that included lobbying MPs, writing letters to Parliament and the Queen, of course, but also gathering enormous petitions. And they did this three times in 1839, 1842 and 1848. And each of these occasions, of course, the petitions were rejected. And in 1848, more or less, laughed out of the, the House of Commons. So it was a, a, a very patronising and dismissive attitude, if you like, in terms of the constitutional campaign.
1: OK, I've got a question here, which is uh, submitted by somebody called Marina CRS to. Were there any Chartists from diverse backgrounds?
2: The first person who would come to mind would be William Cuffey. William Cuffey was a man of colour whose mother, I think, was from St Kitts and was held as a slave. He arrives in London from a merchant ship and, and then becomes very much involved in Chartism and becomes very distinctive you could argue because he's a, he's a skillful campaigner and speaker but he is also of course very striking because of his colour but when we look at chartists we see them as as coming from very diverse backgrounds indeed we've already mentioned fergus o'connor who was a major landowner and came from a you know a wealthy family and, and really was a member of the political class Um, Or Ernest Jones, who is a late Chartist leader, who also came from the landed gentry. And so many of the leadership had these wealthy connections. And often it's in spite of that background that they, they become involved in Chartism and committed to lead it.
1: And Gareth Taylor asks, did the Chartists care about women's rights?
2: Yes, they did. They, they did care a great deal. And of course, there were very many women involved. They came to meetings. They shared some of that campaigning. They helped to gather signatures. And women were often those who were making the banners that were carried at meetings. And they had their own groups as well, their female political associations. Famously, the Newcastle women's association who campaigned very hard and were very blunt about their demands and made the argument that they were just as involved in the need to change society as the men were because they were often at the sharp end when um, because of the levels of poverty but inevitably you know you have to remember the stereotypes and attitudes to women at that time um, it was much more difficult for women to campaign publicly. They often donated, but would be anonymous anonymous subscribers to the land plan, for example. That was more common among women, but they were very, very active, as they were in the abolition of slavery campaign. You know, may, possibly not as visible, but very much equal shares in, in the campaigning. But the, the pragmatic. Settlement that was reached that it would be adult male suffrage first and then eventually um, delivered to women. Of course, it's regrettable, I think.
1: So, do you think possibly they could have those demands could have gone further then to demand the vote for women as well at at that time?
2: I think the attempt should have been made, Um, but that's a very personal position. And the Chartists were pragmatists. And that's why you find this balancing act between a constitutional approach to securing change and those who subscribe to what's called physical force chartism, they believed that they should make their demands and and a threat would go with it. Reform or revolution was the slogan. So it's this kind of very careful balancing act
1: Sure. Now I'm going to turn to a question now from uh, Barbara Bukowska, which is, did Chartism influence people beyond the British Isles and in particular the colonies?
2: Well, we have to be careful, of course, because there was a, a good deal of Chartist influence in America, but America was not a colony by that point. We can certainly say that Chartism was an influence in Australia because of the transportees. Um, and the way that they carried their their message, you know, as victims of the British system, if you like, in France, interestingly enough, there's a good deal of working traffic, if you like, so British workers travelling to France to work there and taking the ideas of Chartism with them. So we we get a lot of kind of European connection, because. Uh, British Chartists and European Republicans made common cause and there was a good deal of networking, um, particularly with people like Marx and Engels, of course, who spent great uh, periods of time in the British Isles and um, mixed with Chartists. Um, Ireland too, even though the Irish were very preoccupied by the nationalist cause... There were nevertheless times when they too had a shared platform in terms of changing the system and securing democratic change.
1: Okay, so now I'm going to turn to a question that was uh, asked by a number of people on social media, including Matthew Stevens. And he asks, why did Chartism fail to attain many of its goals? Now,
2: is it fair
1: to describe the Chartist movement as a failure?
2: Only if you regard it as a short-term failure, I would say. We know that in what we call the Chartist period between 1832 and 1855, certainly their demands were not met. But you do get change across the next 30 years, most notably perhaps the secret ballot which is secured in 1867, and the Equal Electoral Districts, which is secured in 1885. There's a lot of focus, of course, on um, the achievement of adult male suffrage, and of course you don't get that until 1918. So it's, it's understandable that when people look at the, the charter and the six points, they say, well, they didn't really secure any of them, even though they campaigned over you know, a 20-year period.
1: You touched upon earlier the authorities' draconian reaction to charitism. Do you think in some ways that draconian reaction worked? People were actually put off from supporting the campaign and continuing the campaign because they were genuinely worried about what was going to happen to them and they was, you was know, nearest to them.
2: Undoubtedly. I mean, this is an all-powerful state. And because people don't have a share in that democracy, they can't exert any influence over, over the way the state operates. So in that sense, you, you could understand why some people were certainly fearful and uh, the number of arrests, you know, the 2,000 people who were arrested in within a 12 months and the number of people who were sent to, you know, really hard labour in really, really uh, extremely punitive prison conditions. Someone like Samuel Holbury, who was a Sheffield Chartist, who ended up in North Arlington Jail and and died as a result of that system of punishment and poor diet, um, inadequate conditions. So let's turn to
1: the longer-term impacts and legacies of Chartism then. We've got a question here from David H. Simmons. He asks, can we connect Chartism to more modern movements such as, say, the rise of the Labour Party And of course, the campaign for female suffrage.
2: Yes, I think we can. In the first place, many early Labour Party members made their own connections with Chartism and um, how they felt that, you know, it was unfinished business, if you like, at the end of the century. The achievement of democracy was still something to be fought for and was a principle that they they felt was worthwhile and so undoubtedly you can you can trace that ideological line if you like between what the chartists were campaigning for and bear in mind they campaigned for more than just the six points we we didn't elaborate that earlier but it was the charter and something more so they campaigned for a free press because of the the taxation on on print. They campaigned for a free education for all because they felt that that was a fundamental change that needed to happen to improve people's lives fully. They campaigned against the Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834, which had led to the rolling out of the workhouse system So they were campaigning on a whole range of social and economic reforms they felt were needed. Improvements to um, the factory system, for example. These were all important matters. If you look at that package of aspirations or demands, then you can certainly map it onto um, even now present Labour Party policy, the, the idea that, We should have a more equal society. Everyone should have a share in the nation's wealth. Everyone should be entitled to a good education and a good health care and free at the point of delivery. These are all fundamental issues that you can trace back.
0: That was Joan Allen. Visiting Fellow in History at Newcastle University and the Chair of the Society for the Study of Labour History. If you're interested in finding out more about Chartism, be sure to check out the BBC radio programme British Socialism, The Grand Tour, which delved into how the movement became an important moment in the story of British Socialism. You can find that now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.